0: Primary Care Knowledge Boost, Polypharmacy.
1: Welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. We hope you're all keeping well. Today we've got a great episode for you all about polypharmacy and looking at polypharmacy in primary care. Our guest is Sarah Hafiz and she is a senior clinical pharmacist. Yes, um, she's fantastic. She's
0: had um, quite a lot of years of experience working in this um, area um, and is quite specialist and knowledgeable in it so it was fantastic to get her views. Um, we go through just the basics of what polypharmacy is and when we should be thinking about it and um, how to um, deal with it in a structured way and with lots of resources that she um, points us to being able to use but then also um, some hints and tips for um, more time-pressed scenarios in general practice and then we go through two fantastic cases um, which illustrate the points really well um, and showcase um, the importance of thinking of polypharmacy. And we hope you enjoy and we'll be back at the end for our learning points. Hi I'm Sarah
2: Fees. I'm a clinical pharmacist. I've been working in primary care for the last seven years now. Um, I completed my independent prescribing about six years ago and I've been working in on polypharmacy and deep prescribing probably for the last seven years now. I've had a few different roles in hospital, community, uh, intermediate care. I've worked uh, in CCG, which is now called ICB, Integrated Care Board now. Uh, but now I'm, I've
0: been in primary care for a while now and that's where my heart is. What a fantastic background Sarah to come today and be able to talk to us about um, polypharmacy. We've been quite excited um, for a little while to um, take a bit of a dive into this because it's such an important priority area. Um, But we thought we'd kick off with asking you well what exactly is polypharmacy? So there's lots of different definitions so it can get confusing. Uh, Generally the consensus is
2: that it's five or more medications but that's not just prescribed medications that can be OTC medications and herbal medications so don't forget about them and you can have two different types of polypharmacy you can have appropriate what we call appropriate polypharmacy which is where the right patients taking the right medications for them it's evidence based it's working and there's a reasonable amount of evidence that it is protecting them from further harm in the future for example the heart attack But then again, you have inappropriate polypharmacy. So that's when you have a combination of medications that can cause more side effects, more problems for the patient. There's no evidence base for them. They're just taking it. They've been taking it for years without anyone reviewing it. And also it can cause uh, medication fatigue too. So patients can get just sick and tired of taking so many medications, especially when it's up to 20 to 30 medications per day or sometimes in one go to be honest i would I'd feel the same way and they just stop taking it and if they don't agree with the medications that they've been prescribed, they will stop taking it It's something that we we do need to review because once we get those medications right it will prevent hospital admissions it will prevent harm and mortality too
1: yeah it's such a good point it's so easy to not necessarily challenge a medication list or you're just kind of quickly clicking on it in a consultation when it's you're dealing with something completely different. Um, have you got any tips about when to raise the alarms for us as clinicians, seeing patients, when to think about po- polypharmacy and and how to have it in the back of our heads a bit more? Usually if, you think, if you're looking at a potentially dangerous comb-
2: combination of medications that are in front of you, to us, it, it will look dangerous. It can look dangerous. To the patient, it's their normal routine. They've been taking it for years, so they don't see what's, what could be potentially dangerous and could be causing problems. So they may come to you with a symptom, and that could be caused by a combination of the polypharmacy. But every patient should have a um, polypharmacy and deprescribing prescribing review, who's taking at least five or more medications. People to target are the elderly, the frail, they're usually on the most combination of medications. And that's because we, we are living in an aging population. People are living longer. So we must be doing something right. But they're accumulating years and years of medications. It's not just the elderly, it's also children and young adults, people with learning difficulties, mental health conditions. Those medications can pile up too. Yeah.
1: Um, we've got yeah, a case here. So 82 year old Betty. She's got type 2 diabetes and she's also got painful diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Um, in the past, she's, she's had low mood and depression, a previous MI and a TIA. Um, her current medications are aspirin, clopidogrel, citalopram, lanzoprazole, lisinopril, metformin, dapaglifosin, amitriptyline, duloxetine, recently progabalin and adcal. So that's quite a lot there. Um, where where would you start with this type of case and looking at that medication list?
2: So I'd, I mean, obviously I'd ask about the patient and what their concerns are and also look at the basics, the dose is correct. So are we looking at, uh, looking at the renal function, um, the blood test results, then looking at the history and then the indications? I'd start from there, but there's lots of concerns for me that I would want to address with the patient. They're on a dual antiplatelet, they're taking aspirin and clopidogrel together. How long have they been taking that for? Because some patients can carry on with it for longer than they should do. If they, usually, you take it for at least 12 to 18 months post-MI or, or TIA. Um, I once had a patient who'd been taking that combination for 20 years. I'm going to look through the notes, they should have stopped it 19 years ago. Um, don't take that for granted and I think lots of people think that people will review it but it's not so it's just reviewing that do they still need to carry on with that because that combination is increasing their risk of bleeding especially with that age it's okay. so also increasing their risk of bleeding is the citalopram and diloxetine combined so there are mm-hmm. four medications that can cause a bleeding risk and they're an 82 year old with diabetic neuropathy so they're more likely to fall also, they're taking citalopram and duloxetine. That's two SSRIs. Definitely, do not recommend that both of them together. Uh, definitely not. And you can, when you start just looking at guidelines alone, you know, you it's obvious they take. They've been prescribed duloxetine for the diabetic neuropathy. They've been prescribed citalopram for the low mood. But when you put that together, that's not appropriate. It's not, that's not great for the patient. Um, we usually recommend just one. So, with duloxetine we do have a two in one medication there because it's licensed for low mood and it's less licensed for diabetic neuropathy. And that's usually the drug of choice. And then looking at Citalopram, duloxetine and Amitriptyline, you've got two, three antidepressants there. So, that's three medications that's increasing your serotonin levels. And that can cause serotonin syndrome, which um, a lot of people don't usually come across. So that mm. can cause hot sweats. It can cause palpitations. Very, very high doses, which is what they use in other countries. We don't We tend to see that in the UK. That can be fatal and can be very dangerous. So I once had a patient who was taking amitriptyline and citalopram and she'd been getting hot sweats for a year now. She'd been investigated by the GP. They'd ruled out menopause. They'd ruled out all the other causes. She'd been to see a nurse and she'd been referred to me to have a look at medications. And when we looked back at history, the hot sweats started when she started taking amitriptyline and the citalopram. So we we weaned off that we to the weaned off the citalopram because she didn't need it anymore. She was doing really well. She successfully came off, and the hot sweats sweats was vanished. And she couldn't believe that she'd been living with these symptoms, and it was just a simple fix to her. But that's just something to to consider that again, like we said before, they may come to you with symptoms and. Don't rule out the medications or the combination of medications that could be causing that. Um, so just just going back to the patient, around three different neuropathic medications, the amitriptyline, deloxetine, progabaline. We don't usually recommend that either. It's not the best combination. It's increasing the risk of drowsiness. It's seeing um, You've got also with amitriptyline, That's that has a high anticholinergic burden. Together with, with the other medications too. So she's an 82 year old lady. Do we want to increase the risk of cognitive decline? Is she aware that it can increase the risk of dementia? And most patients aren't aware of that. And to them, that risk outweighs the benefit from that medication. But it's also just asking them if they are getting any benefit from the, the pain medications or are they getting more side effects than the benefits? And is it something that they want to think about stopping but I always, I will always present it as a trial. Let's trial a, a smaller dose and then go from there and keep going if you can. They're also taking, I mean, I'm glad they're taking Lanzoprazole. So they definitely need a PPI if they're on four medications that can increase the risk of bleeding. And then obviously they, they have the Dapaglifacin. So it's so also making sure that dose is appropriate. Um, that can increase weight loss um so losing too much weight can naturally improve her blood pressure so then we need to look at lisinopril is that dose appropriate because we forget in the elderly they are more sensitive to postural hypertension so that's just something to review especially if her balance isn't great and she's not great in the feet she's more likely to fall
0: yeah, that's fantastic. That was such a nice illustration of um, how to go through medications and you can instantly see what a difference that
1: might make to the burden on her. It's fascinating. You mentioned quite a few different risks and concerns, really, there. the two SSRIs, the four medications that can cause bleeding uh, and the three neuropathic medications. Um, in terms of yeah, trying to balance your worries um, versus what the patient might be, wanting what would your priorities be going into this in terms of what medications you might want to try and think of the priority of either reducing or stopping or so I would stop one of the SSRIs
2: first not just stop but I'd wean off and stop them all together it definitely (laughs) should be on that if the indication for the dual antiplatelet therapy has expired and they've been on it for too long definitely stop that I don't need to wean off the antiplatelets you just stop if they've had a history of TIA, then you'd stop the aspirin and carry on with the clopidogrel. That's the most evidence-based antiplatelet. Um, and then carry on with the lanzoprasol because an ICKS recommends if you're over 70, they recommend a PPI, a gastroprotection medication with the antiplatelet, a single antiplatelet. She most likely probably is going to carry on with the diloxetine. So the diloxetine anti antiplatelet, she's still at increased risk of bleeding. But we've reduced that down if we've stopped an antiplatelet and an SSRI. And then, I'd, yeah, I would look at the amitriptyline and explain the risks. Usually, most patients, when they hear that it, it's increasing their risk of dementia, and they've had personal life experience from that, from a relative or a friend, they're more likely to want to start to come off that. It may not be causing benefit or it might be causing a hangover effect in the morning. It's just something to consider. Um, I mean, pregabalin also is not my favorite drug. Um, I'm not sure mm. why she was added on that. So that's something to look at. If diloxetine alone could help manage your neuropathic pain, but it's not just looking at the medication, it's also looking at non pharmacological therapies too to help manage your pain. And that, that they could be better alternatives than the pregabalin. Yeah, fab.
0: And we do have another case, um, hopefully, to go through that um, you've popped together for us, um, Sarah, just to try and give a different perspective um, from your point of view. Do you want to go through that for us? Yeah, so this is
2: a 69-year-old lady. She has chronic low back pain, COPD, osteoporosis, overactive bladder, and, and she's frail. So she's taking lansoprazole. Morphine, Tamazepam, Zopiclone, foster, Spireva, Salbutamol, Gabapentin, Oxybutanin, and then Alindronic Acid, Adcal D3, and Cyanocobalamin. So I have seen this combination quite often. There's so many things to unpick with this. Obviously, we're going to look at the morphine. How long have they been taking it? We know that long-term opioids aren't recommended anymore, and that was recent. There was a recent change in the NICE guidance that recommended that um, our patients aware that it increases the risk of tolerance, dependence, it can cause immunosuppression, it can affect your bladder muscles, it can cause bladder symptoms. I know and also mortality too. Patients have sadly passed away because they've inadvertently overdosed on opioids or they've mixed it with something else that they bought off the street. And not realized mm-hmm. and, and that's something to consider right? if patients are on morphine or other dependence forming medication just think about is there anything else that they're taking that they might be buying off the street or from mm-hmm. a relative or somewhere else or a friend it's just making sure that they're aware and is it working and are they open to i never say i uh, we want to stop it you should say let's trial a small reduction build up their confidence, and then, then keep going, keep reducing down. They're also taking tamisopam and zopiclone, both for, for insomnia, but she's still having trouble sleeping, and she's taking these two medications, so are they really helping? Can we look at the, her sleep hygiene? What's her routine like? What's the diet like? What's the caffeine intake? We're, I'm very fortunate that I have two very good mental health practitioners in our PCN, and they're amazing. One of them can provide CBT in primary care and he specialized in sleep therapies. So wow. I, I, we work very closely
1: together. That's amazing. That's, that's like such an ace up your sleeve. What an asset. <laughs> I know. When I found out, I was so excited. So, and we work really closely together. He
2: will work with the patient with to help with their sleep routine and give them sleep therapy. And then I'll work with the patient to help slowly wean them off. The benzodiazepine and the Z drugs so it's a really good partnership and you know don't don't think you're doing this on your own you can't do this on your own you need people around you you need mental health practitioners you need social prescribers you need pharmacists, GPs, nurses everyone working together and then another thing is she's taking gabapentin and also morphine issue where that can increase the risk of respiratory depression especially when she has a history of COPD so that's something to to look at and consider. Um, we definitely don't recommend gabapentin and opioids together. It can um, that combination can increase um, the opioid effect and give you a, a more of a high, so to speak, which patients aren't always aware of. Maybe they are aware of, but they're not going to tell us.
1: Yeah, no, that's a that's a, such an important point. The increased risk of respiratory depression and death um, for those medications, and how how often are people really counselled about that? When they're starting it, that's it. It's um,
2: communication and counselling is key. It's just letting them know the risks. Why I had a patient recently who had bariatric surgery; she'd lost loads of weight and then she'd been started on gabapentin for neuropathic pain, but she hadn't been counselled that gabapentin can cause weight gain. So she gained all the weight back a year later, and that really affected the confidence, affected the mental health and she tried everything with the diet and lifestyle her weight was not budging and she wanted another surgery which we know that's not recommended so i worked with her to slowly reduce gabapentin and she's also taking mirtazapine which is an antidepressant that can increase appetite so we worked together to slowly wean her off and also to incorporate non pharmacological therapies and alternatives like physio social prescribing to help manage your pain better too and it, it was it was really nice to see as the gabapentin was coming down her weight body weight was coming down too gradually with it she she was a lot more motivated that she could see that shift and her pain w- was fine she 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 didn't realise that she was taking it, she didn't need it and she could manage the pain better. And she said, if I knew that gabapentin
1: caused weight gain, I never would have started it in the first place. It is communication is key. I think these are just perfect to illustrate the points. That's that's incredible learning for everyone, yeah.
0: yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to highlight with the with that kiss? She She's also
2: taking lansoprazole and that's for acid reflux. Like, she's been on that for the last twenty thirty years. So we know now, we didn't know this back then, but we know now that they did a long-term study in America where they looked at the risks of PPIs and they realized it increases the risk of osteoporosis, bone fractures. It increases the risk of immunosuppression. It can reduce your magnesium and B 12 levels down. Um, so lots of patients aren't aware of that because um, it tends to be something that you just carry on with, lensoprazole also when you stop taking it if you stop taking it abruptly you can get rebound hyperscretion the patient will think oh I need this because my symptoms have flare up flared up massively I need to carry on with this but if they understand if you slowly wean off wean down that will reduce the the risk or the intensity of the hyperscretion and it eventually settles down so if they're aware of that, and are more likely to wean off and stop it. That's another example of a medication that can't be stopped abruptly. It needs to be weaned down. Um, but as you can see, she's taking alandronic acid and ad d 3 So it has the PPI contributed towards that? Is she aware of that? Also, she's taking B12 tablets. Lansoprazole can reduce B12 levels. So that's something else to consider. Another thing is she's taking oxybutanin. So is that something that the long-term morphine has contributed towards mm. with oxybutynin, that has a high anticholinergic burden, so that can increase your risk again of cognitive decline, dementia, falls, mortality. It's an inter- instant-release formulation which isn't recommended in the elderly frail. So if you're going to use it, use a modified-release version or a, a different alternative. However, it doesn't—they don't always work. Sometimes the symptoms are ongoing and they're still taking the medications. So that's something that you kind of abruptly stop. But usually I will give them a bladder diary. So we have a really nice bladder diary on GMMG. So they (laughs) fill it in before they stop taking the medication, wait four weeks and then fill it in again afterwards after stopping the medication. And if there isn't much difference, it puts things into perspective for the patient and they realize that actually there's not much difference i've been taking this for no reason and i've been getting all the risks but no benefits from it so that's really helpful to to trial
1: yeah great tip that's awesome yeah i'm going to use that
2: and also with oxybutynin your three times more yeah your risk of dementia increases by three times most patients
1: aren't aware of that and for them that risk outweighs the benefit yeah that's a that's quite an incredible risk when you put it like that yeah um, any any other points? I think we've covered quite a lot from that case. Anything else that you wanted to... Also, just thinking about the elderly frail. In the clinical trials, a lot of medications
2: haven't been tested in the elderly frail in this cohort. Just be aware of that. It may not be appropriate to them. They may not respond the same way as a younger person would. But, you know, We know we, as you become more frail and, and you get older, your pharmacokinetics change. So the way that you ha- they handle the medications are different. The half-lives of medications will increase. They're more likely to become more drowsy. And she she could be becoming more drowsy with the morphine, temazepam and zapatone combination. Th- those are all sort of things that run through my mind before I speak to a patient. And then then just take baby steps. You can't change everything all in one go. It's too overwhelming for most people. It's fine. Find one thing. Have you prioritise a list of changes that you want to make with the patient. Agree that with the patient. Try and match, match up their concerns and your concerns together. And then just slowly go through them one by one. You will need follow-up reviews. You will because you yeah. can't do it all in one go. If you stop with medications, do them one at a time, never together. If you get in withdrawal effects, it will get confusing on which drug is causing what. It's just easier If the patient tolerates it better, it will build up their confidence in in stopping medications.
1: Oh, that's fabulous. Um, Yeah, it just illustrates some of the points perfectly. Um, So getting back to basics, what are some of the options for different types of medication reviews and what we'd do in an ideal world? In in an ideal world, we'll... um, We could use structured medication
2: reviews. So there's different types of medication reviews, but the structured medication review is the gold standard because we're going through each medication. We're reviewing the indication. Is it still valid? Has it expired? A lot of the time it can expire. And I've come across lots of patients that have been taking medications that should have been stopped 20 years ago, but they've carried on. Also just looking at, is is every medication evidence-based? because guidelines change all the time. We know this. And it's not just that. The simple question is, are they taking the medications? Sometimes we just assume, we make that assumption, but a lot of the time they're not. Sometimes when we are pressed for time, they won't admit to it, they won't tell us, they won't reveal that. But when we do have lots of time, um, and they feel comfortable enough to open up and tell you, actually, I didn't agree with that. I'm not taking it. I don't think I need it or it gave me side effects. A friend of mine took it and he passed away. There's so many different reasons why they don't take the medications. Ideally, we would do a structured medication review where we give the patients lots of time to open up and go through each medication. It's not something that you can do in five minutes, especially when they're on so many different medications that's taken
1: years and
2: years to prescribe. It's it's years and years that you're unpacking.
1: So for a structured medication review, um, in our practice, it's mainly the pharmacist that does that. Is that generally the expected thing or who should be doing the structured medication reviews?
2: Well, it can be um, a clinical pharmacist, it can be a GP, it could be an um, advanced practitioner, anyone who's, who's trained. For a pharmacist, it's our bread and butter.
1: Yeah. And how do you go about it? Where do you start?
2: There's lots of different resources that you can use. There's GMMG Polypharmacy Guidance. That's very comprehensive. Um, NHS Scotland Polypharmacy Guidance. That's very good. There's different tools to structure the the review. My personal favourite is No Tears because that's just simple and easy.
1: I've not heard of
2: that one. Can you talk us through it? It's an acronym. It just gives you a guide of all the things to look through when you're looking at a polypharmacy review. So the first one... N is for need and looking at indication. Is it needed? Has the diagnosis changed? Has the long term treatment changed? And is the dose correct? And just giving the patients, asking the patients open questions, because we, we need to get their ideas and concerns across. It's an equal partnership. So we're looking at shared decision making. We want to empower the patient to ask more questions and be part of changing their medications. And then you have tests. So just looking at blood tests or other tests that can give us more information. Also looking at renal function. There can be lots of patients where their renal functions fallen. And just looking at evidence, is the guidance changed? So we've had new opioid guidance in the last few years. We've had new hypertension guidance. And then looking at adverse effects, are they getting any side effects? Some of them they may be aware of, some of them they might not be aware of. For example... If they're on long-term opioids, that can relax your bladder muscles. And then looking at risk reduction, can we reduce risk? And then having a look at simplifying the regime, probably looking at more, I'd say, cost-effectiveness too, making cost-effective switches.
0: Um, No, that's fab. That's a really nice um, structure um, and framework to use, actually. Um, I think some of the other ones that we've heard of are things like the stop-start tool that come up quite a bit. Um, Do you mind touching on those and if they're useful to use in structured medication reviews? Yeah, so um, the stop-start criteria,
2: that's been around for for years and I think that was one of the first tools that came out that gave recommendations to stop medications and which ones to start, when to start medications, especially in the elderly. And then from that, grew other tools, stop frailty, stop-screening, and they were really good. There's also the BABES criteria that came out years ago and that's American and then you, you also have other other resources too there's, there's things from GMMG polypharmacy guidance there's NHS Scotland polypharmacy guidance and it breaks it down into BNF chapters which is useful it's easy to find and there's other resources like there's also you want to look at anticholinergic burden and then that's linked to cognitive decline, mortality, falls and that's something that isn't reviewed as often as we can do. We usually put it on the back burner, but it is very important. There's also, if you're looking at deprescribing, there is deprescribing.org, which is a Canadian website, and that's evidence-based. That works on specific cohort of, it's not on all medication groups, but it will talk about how to deprescribe PPIs. Sometimes patient information leaflets on there, which is helpful. And then, you know, if you get to a point where you have a medication, you want to deprescribe it, the patient wants to deprescribe it, a lot of people can get stuck there because there isn't much guidance on how to deprescribe exactly. There's guidance on what to deprescribe, but not how to deprescribe. So you can use um, a website called Medstopper and you can just insert the drug name and it will give you sort of a guide on how to reduce it down. For example, reduce it down by 25% every few weeks. But I'd say take it with a pinch of salt because every patient's different. Some patients tolerate a quicker reduction, some people don't. And it depends on what medications there are. So some medications you can just stop. There won't be any withdrawal effects. But some medications like opioids, there will be a withdrawal effect if
1: we stop it abruptly. And the same with antidepressants too. I'm definitely finding a lot of use in individualising how to reduce SSRIs, antidepressants, um, and and just doing it extremely slowly with people. I think this the last couple of years that seems to have been a real breakthrough. <laughs> oh, definitely. I've had
2: lots of conversations with patients who have wanted to reduce down, but have no idea how to do that. Yeah. I always stress the importance of not doing it on your own because it's not easy. With with antidepressants, we do recommend you slowly wean off because there is withdrawal effects. And it's also explained to the patient how to recognize withdrawal effects versus relapsing. Yeah, If they start reducing down and they immediately start to feel unwell or their mental health starts to deteriorate, that's withdrawal. That's a withdrawal effect. And it does eventually settle down. But the slower you go, the more tolerable the withdrawal effects are for the patient. Say you've stopped the antidepressant a few months later, they start to feel worse again and unwell again, that's a relapse. It's looking at the risks versus the benefits. If the risks of taking the antidepressant long-term outweigh any benefit, then that can just deter patients from stopping the medications later on in the future. It's just making sure they they've got support, um, regular follow-ups with you, and they can talk things through if they have any questions. It's not just looking at the drugs and the withdrawal effects. It's looking at their environment. Um, I always recommend to to patients to start a reduction in the spring summer time rather than the the winter months, and more like most likely they'll have a successful withdrawal and they'll start.
0: Some f- fantastic tips um, there for sure, and we'll link to all of the resources that you've mentioned um, there. I guess uh, on the flip side of things. Um, in general practice there isn't often time to do the really dedicated structured medication reviews as often as we'd like um do you have any hints or tips for kind of addressing polypharmacy in those more time pressured situations
2: yeah no absolutely in an ideal world we'd have a few hours and we'd have as many much time as we can give to patients but that obviously we all know that there's time pressures i know that i've been under that too so usually um before I go in to see a patient, I'll have a quick glance through the medications. Being a pharmacist, I understand things. If I uh, on EMS, if I organise all the medications into BNF chapters, and then I can go through each system one by one. Mm. <laughs> that, that's mm. logical for me, and I, I find that's quicker. Because sometimes if they're all jumbled up or even in alphabetical order, it sometimes it's hard to piece things together and link things link things up. There is. Um, I've also been using the Me and My Medicines Charter, which is it's a patient-led campaign, and that is basically an information leaflet, very clear, very simple, very nice information leaflet that you can send to patients beforehand, and it gives them a chance to think about what their ideas, what their concerns are with the medications. I d- I ran a pilot for a few months, and I found that. Instead of me using the time to ask open questions and try and pull the information from them and giving patients time to think about it, patients had already done that step on their own with their family and their relatives. So they would come in and they would have a list of all their concerns and we'd go through them together. So we're using that time more productively. I always start with the patient's concerns before addressing my concerns if you build up that rapport with the patients and you help them where that concerns they're more likely to be on board when you start talking about what you're worried about
1: yeah. that really helps definitely making it patient-centered from the off sounds sounds wise and um, do you want to just give us a bit of a summary, like what, what your take-home points are from today's discussion? Yeah,
2: so with polypharmacy, it's it's a massive subject. It's so vast, vast and broad. I guess you do have to be a generalist. You need to know yeah. about so many different types of medications and diseases and long-term conditions. There are resources out there and they are growing, they are getting better. But I'd say just take a structured approach, listen to the patient's concern, you shared cat decision-making, empower them to take charge of their medications. They're the ones that are, li- are living with the medications. So if they're, they're on board with reducing them down, they're more likely to successfully reduce polypharmacy down and de-prescribe inappropriate medications. And use the resources that are available, and not just resources online or guidelines. Use the people around you. Ask your pharmacists. Ask your, your mental health practitioners, take advantage of their their skills and expertise uh, and social prescribers and physios. Um it's not something that you can do alone. And okay. and again, just baby steps, take it step by step. If you go especially when you're de-prescribing, just start with the worst and then slowly go down down your list. And it, it will take months, it can take months, and that's normal. <laughs> it, but you have to also think it's taken years to accumulate these medications it's going to take time to reverse that
1: yeah oh that's fabulous thank you so so much sarah this has been a wonderful conversation really useful
0: So Sarah, what a lovely chat with um with the other Sarah um today all about polypharmacy. Um what were your thoughts and
1: takeaway points um, right away? Yeah, oh it was brilliant. I think she's an, a brilliant speaker about it. She's clearly incredibly knowledgeable. So really chuffed uh, that we got to speak to her. I, I think I was going through my learning points after all my scribblings and thinking, oh there's too many to talk about. <laughs> um but I really liked the way she structured it and the way after she's mentioned about the um, massive importance of making sure that you've got the patient's concerns I liked to um teasing out what her priorities were as well um from the cases so um just because I thought well that just gives you an idea of what's going on on somebody really quite experienced mind in terms of the priorities and so sort of, you know making sure they're not on to SSRIs and weaning down gently and carefully and her tips around that as well um, and then not taking things for granted that there'll still be an indication for dual antiplatelets, for example. I just thought it was brilliant. Um, her case with the long term opiates and remembering about the the bladder symptoms and talking about, well, actually, are they on because the because of the bladder symptoms that morphine's been causing? Um, <laughs> yes. And actually going through it really sensibly, I think I think it was that structured approach to so many different potential side effects and actually talking it through with a patient and getting that time to involve them in the decision making and, and the potential side effects that they're their suffering as well yeah
0: yeah exactly i think yeah based from what you've said two of the things that um i'd taken away was um that restructuring of the medication list by bnf chapter i think i would understand that better as well because it would group things in the right places and you start to see well where is the overlap and where is the um, potential for being on several ssris for example um and also the fact that the reminder to think of new symptoms as being related to medications that people are on i think it can be easy to often um miss that in like the differentials um that it
1: might be iatrogenic we might be causing this because of medications a hot sweats yeah serotonin syndrome yeah, yeah re- that I, th- I think that's really important it's so hard to uh, thinking the time when you're going through a history about hot sweats um, is something that I used to definitely forget and probably still don't prioritize as much as I should
0: I think it's because you're just after you're wanting to find like
1: a disease or a diagnosis that's that's where your brain
0: automatically goes when someone comes in with a new symptom um, red flags yeah yeah exactly you're like what's worrying things what am I trying to um, think about so yeah I just thought that that was a nice little reminder and um, that it could be the medication um, and then what else have I written down Oh yes, the um, the fact about discussing um, withdrawal effects versus relapse yeah, um, quite an important one to frame things to get people um, to be more on board when reducing medications. That was really useful. The the point about the fact that there's little research in the elderly and frail. I think with with regards to medications, we often remember children, we often remember pregnant ladies, but um, the fact that yeah, not many elderly or frail people are included in these studies mm. is um, quite important to remember actually um because i don't think that would come to my mind straight away
1: yeah i liked her when she was talking about that with the dapoglyphosin, her weight might drop actually yes. postural hypotension and she's already on an antihypertensive. so yeah it was just yeah just i, I really like that thought process her talking us through that yeah definitely and then the final point that i think
0: um was just really useful was um just her saying that it, it can take time and not to worry that it's going to take time to do this because of how long it's taken to to build up um you can expect it to take time to build it back down again and i think that was just a nice message um that you don't need to do everything immediately
1: but that yeah it's important to do but you can take the time to do it yeah it fits in really nicely with the chronic pain message as well about uh, opioid reduction and the the lack of use of opioids often in, in chronic pain and she did mention there about pain management and using your team and other ways of 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 dealing with it and, and making sure that it's it's going to be realistic types of reductions and um, three times higher risk of dementia that was a really important learning point for me and to share with people um, and I'm, I'm gonna steal the resource for the bladder diaries so before you've stopped the medication for we- and then four weeks after you've stopped it I think that'll be really really helpful yeah yeah definitely so it's so hard to tell if something's working or not <laughs>
0: yeah like subjective evidence <laughs> oh no what a fab chat and um as always uh, we will put all the links in the episode description and um, we'll um, put the ways that you can contact us um in there as well and um, we always love getting feedback we say it every time um but um if you've got any thoughts um, anything you want to let us know um please get in touch um because we do like hearing from you um and like share subscribe tell people about it and um, get the message out it's just lovely to see it spreading really till next time on primary
1: care knowledge boost This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership.
0: Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public.
1: They were recorded in 2023 guidelines can vary by location as well as over time so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions
0: the content is based
1: on our interviewees
0: opinion and interpretation of current best practice it's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast
1: check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode